Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to uh, the second hour of Amplify, where our guest is Father Brian Milady, who is a member of the uh, Dominican congregation. Uh, he's written a book titled Captivated by the Master, A Theological Consideration of Jesus Christ when we ended the first part of the program, I we started to speak about what does it mean that Christ was full of grace and truth. But as a matter of fact, he has two chapters. One is addresses full of grace, and the second is uh, full of, of truth, in which he, he explains that it's heretical to believe that Christ was truly ignorant of his calling and... Uh, that it's most fundamental, grace is a true relationship between a person and God that affects a genuine change in our soul. Um, but we also talked about the fact that we can lose grace, but Jesus is the, the perfect man. And uh, Father Milady, one of the most disputed questions you believe of Christology is, in our time, is, is Jesus's knowledge and consciousness. Why is that? Well, I believe because people don't think that, first of all, it's very difficult to think that the scriptures can contain truths that are what we used to call metaphysical, spiritual. Um, many people today try to reduce Christ, as you know, to what they call Christology from below, where they just know what you can describe and they refuse to allow all these definitions of the councils to influence what they think about who he really is. Um, also, it seems fantastic to people that Christ in his higher intellect could be in union constantly with God, and yet especially suffer and die on the cross. So, first of all, to state clearly, the traditional doctrine is that Christ, from the first moment of his conception, saw the beatific vision. He's the only one who ever lived here on earth mm -hmm. for whom that's true, because he is God. Now, I don't mean in his divine intellect. Obviously, in his divine intellect, if there's two in Jesus, he always was in knowledge of his Father. And we're talking about his human intelligence. He also uh, experienced the kind of infused knowledge of his mission. And some of the objections to this were the problem of Christ saying he knew neither the day nor the hour. Well, the new catechism, interestingly enough, takes up this phrase 
by saying that what Christ stated to not knowing here, in other places in Scripture, he states that he was not sent to reveal. And so it's not a part of his revelation, but he certainly knew the day and the hour. He also knew everything connected to his mission. And Adam had infused knowledge. So if Adam has infused knowledge, it seems the reason that Christ should too. Now, in the Middle Ages, for the whole first, well, I would say a good number of years in the church, people found it difficult if they maintained this about Christ to see why he could have ordinary knowledge like we do, what they used to call experiential knowledge. And interestingly enough, in St. Thomas Aquinas' famous book, The Summa, he denied this of Christ. He's he first of all been a youthful work, but he corrects himself. And he says Christ is a perfect human being. As a perfect human being, he has to have perfect use of all human powers, and that means the ability to have experimental knowledge, too, which leads him to try to discuss how you can have experimental knowledge and diffuse knowledge at the same thing at the same time. So the idea would be something like this. Jesus knew the nature of a stone by the very fact of his conception. He may have tailored the experience and expression of that knowledge to a certain age, because he didn't want his sacred humanity to be thought to be fantastic. But when it came to the number of stones in a stream, Christ would have had to count them. Some people trying to make this opinion, this traditional opinion, seem fantastic, or said, well, then Jesus would have had to have known French before it was invented. No, because it wasn't necessary to his mission. What he assumed, he also assumed the term in fancy theology is called economically, which isn't how to balance your checkbook, but it's how to contribute to his redemption, his redemptive perfect obedience. Now, ignorance would not have done that of his mission, of the things necessary for his mission. Interestingly enough, there's also a theological difficulty about whether Christ had to submit to human teachers. And the traditional solution to this is that the most perfect way of knowing is by discovery, not by teaching. In other words, a genius can have one explanation given to him of something or observe it and understand it. Whereas the person, most of us, we have to submit to teachers because we don't have such quick, you know, knowledge of things. Mm-hmm. Now, I, my response to some of the people who maintain that this was fantastic to Christ is, you know, Mozart could compose a piano concerto at the age of three. <laughs> it yes. seems to me that there are certain people who are geniuses. And if he could do that, it seems not fantastic to me that Christ could have known about his mission from the moment of his entrance into the world. After all, St. Paul says, in the moment Christ came into the world, he said, here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. He doesn't say when he was three or five or ten or that he had to come home and Mary had to tell him he was the Redeemer and, and that sort of thing. Also, when it came to submitting to teaching, Christ did that, but not because he needed to be taught. It was because he didn't want his human nature to seem fantastic. And he only learned at the normal age everybody else would learn in normal ways. There are authors, I've discovered, secular authors, who maintained that Jesus not only knew Aramaic and Hebrew, but 
but he also knew Greek because it was, as you know, the virtual language of the Roman Empire, and he, after all, was a carpenter. And then some people maintain that Jesus even knew Latin. So those would have been, if, I'm not saying he did, because the scriptures don't tell us that, but those would have been much more useful to him than knowing French before it was invented. So that's a theological strange Mm-hmm. I attempt to reduce Christ's knowledge to absurdity. And one further point, there are people who maintain, and very credible theologians, and famous theologians, that first of all, Jesus did not have the beatific vision on this earth, or even if he did, he'd lose it in the cross so he could suffer in faith. Now, the only person in Scripture you will not find the term faith attributed to is our Lord. And the reason is because he had vision. He didn't need faith. And uh, he, what he did was he did not allow this higher knowledge in his higher self to arrive at his lower self, except on very rare occasions, perhaps like the Transfiguration, in order that he might suffer the Passion and die. Also, there are people who maintain that um, Christ experienced uh, faith and, well, despair and uh, nihilism and meaninglessness intellectually in the Passion, and the, which you, you referenced at the beginning of the, the program, the agony in the garden. Well, that's not exactly true. He certainly experienced those emotions, but he always knew why he was doing this. Yes. And he judged it. He realized that in order to redeem the human race, he had to suffer and die. So in the famous, if it's possible, let this cup pass me by, Christ was speaking on the level of his emotions because he knew it was going to hurt terribly, terribly, terribly. And his death was going to be just horrendous. Death by crucifixion is one of the greatest torments we can think of. But he also said, not as I will, as you will, in his higher choosing self. So he didn't vacillate in doing the passion, though he was suffering terribly in it. You uh, write about Jesus, the imperfect you. You're right. We've talked a lot about Christ's perfection. Now let's consider his apparent weaknesses. Taking on human nature meant that Christ took on real limitations, Understanding the precise nature of those limitations is essential to understanding Christ's saving mission. Thomas Aquinas used the term, quote-unquote, defects for these limitations, but this shouldn't be taken to mean genuine faults, but rather aspects of Christ that seem to run counter to his divinity, such as his ability to suffer and die. And so... You write that everything Christ uh, assumed in the Incarnation uh, was for love of us and our redemption, that he assumed the conditions of human nature that were necessary to free us from sin, um, that he had to assume some punishment, some evil of being to atone for our sins, and that we can learn a lot from the spiritual life from the way Christ experienced emotions. Right. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Christ is traditionally referred to, St. Thomas did this, and John Paul II used the same expression, so it hasn't gone out of fashion, as someone who is at the same time a pilgrim and a comprehensor. In other words, 
In his higher self, he saw the beatific vision. Otherwise, he could have sinned. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been any better than Adam. He, he, and he would have had to merit the vision for himself. No. The only person Christ merits the vision for is us, because he has it by nature. But he was also a pilgrim because he submitted to suffering, pain, and death, but not all suffering, pain, and death. Not, for example, the flu, but mm-hmm. to hunger and thirst. And, um, for example, when his body was cut, he obviously not only bled, but he also hurt. And if we truly think about the doctrine, is our traditional doctrine about Jesus, since his body was fashioned by the Holy Spirit, though it took flesh in Mary's womb, it was an exquisitely fashioned body. And that means it was the most perfect fleshly human body. Now that would mean that Christ, when his body was cut, would experience more pain and he'd be more sensitive rather than less pain and be less sensitive. So in the, that famous scourging scene, for example, that Mel Gibson has in his movie The Passion, which is absolutely repulsive to watch, but that pain that Jesus experienced would have been just in, in, in unimaginable in his physical human body. And the same with the nails and the same with the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 he, he assumed these things that many people would consider to be defects. I mean, many, many people had great difficulty converting to Christianity just because we have a God who suffered and died. Or well, one of the more famous difficulties was that the Stoics, who were famous philosophers in Roman Greece at the time Christ lived, they believed that the passions were the enemies of the soul. And one passion that they hated, as far as being a virtuous man, was sorrow, because mm-hmm. they didn't think you could be sad. You shouldn't be sad if your body is cut, because you should be above that. And you shouldn't be sad, obviously, because you didn't have any sins or evil in your soul. So they could not figure out how Jesus could be said to be sorrowful unto death. That just passed belief to them. And interestingly enough, Christianity was influenced by this, because the first commentary to be written on a literal sense of the book of Job in the history of the Catholic Church was written by Aquinas in the 13th century. There was a a commentary on its allegorical sense by Gregory the Great called the Moralia, but the literal sense, nobody could figure out how Job could be said to be a just man and curse the day of his birth and wish he'd been in the board of fetus. They couldn't understand that at all. And they didn't understand how he could be sad, so sad, And yet, at the same time, be described as being just, because they took the passions as all being sicknesses of the soul. And no, good passions help our souls. It's the disoriented passions that don't. And, you know, if your body is being broken, to cry out in in anguish and sorrow is not disordered. It's the way things should be. You write in the chapter, he wills it. Uh, in order for Christ to atone for our sin, it was necessary that he exercise true acts of human obedience in our place. This means, though, that his human will had to have a certain autonomy within his divine person, 
Otherwise, Christ the man would have been merely a puppet of Christ the divine. There has to be a true and real distinction between the divine will in Christ and the human will in Christ because it is the human will in Christ that truly merits, that truly satisfies for our sins. And so um, you write then that Christ could not have freely chosen suffering in his agony in the garden unless he already knew that he would rise from the dead and that he suffered more than we would and that Christ could fear the cross at the same time that he chose it, knowing full well the horrors he was atoning for and thus the good he was doing. Right. Well, and of course, the big issue there is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many people think that's Jesus again experiencing well, the existentialist philosophies of the 60s, your audience probably doesn't know who those people are, because nobody talks about them much anymore. But they basically felt the world was absurd. Everything was absurd. Jesus' passion was absurd. He was called the Lord of the Absurd. He had no reasonability whatsoever, and it was all meaningless, and just Jesus somehow made sense of all the meaninglessness. I mean, <laughs> no, that's not true. The resurrection, first of all, the future resurrection gave him, and he actually predicted his own resurrection. And secondly, we have to remember that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the first verse of the psalm. And if you read the psalm, it's very far from a cry of the absurdity of life. Though it's an innocent psalmist who's suffering unjustly, grievously, physically. In the end, it ends with a great praise of our of the Lord and the congregation because the Lord will vindicate him. And so Christ isn't just throwing himself into this uh, uh, complete meaninglessness of life with faith that somehow God's going to make something good happen as a result of this. The way I like to put it is the people who look on it this way think Jesus is the most surprised person on earth when he rose from the dead. Oh, gee, I didn't know this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you know, modern people, many of them modern theologians even rejected Jesus physically rose of the dead. The catechism has some numbers in this because some modern Catholic theologians maintain that the community made up the resurrection of the dead to make sense of the meaninglessness of the cross, which is, of course, related again to this rather silly opinion that life is meaningless and somehow we have to give it meaning. God gives it meaning, not us. And uh, Christ's passion makes perfect sense if you consider that the atonement involves basically two things. First of all, suffering some pain for the original sin with perfect obedience to reverse Adam's unloving disobedience. This drama is set by Mary's loving obedience to reverse Eve's unloving disobedience. And then the second is that it has to be completed by the sending of the Holy Spirit back into our souls that we Mm -hmm. lost through the original sin after Christ dies on the cross. And you want us so to... Un- death, yeah, go ahead. The death puts an end to the power of Satan to, over us, and the only people who could make us lose grace now are ourselves through personal sin. But Christ sends the Holy Spirit back into the world. Remember, Babel is reversed in Pentecost with the foundation of the Church, from his risen body in heaven, and he's always with this church on earth through the sacraments 
and the hierarchical church by supporting it. And I didn't remember um, reflecting on this, on the various points that you make in your book, uh, Captivated by the Master, but also this one, when you write that there is no greater suffering, which in turn requires no greater love than to endure death without deserving it. Right. Well, when you consider that Christ was condemned without deserving it, human judges, when you consider that he was rejected by the people he lived with, by his own people, his reputation was besmirched, everything was innocent, an innocent lamb led to the slaughter. Um, But the final capstone of that is the death by crucifixion, which, of course, you can see with the... uh, you know, nature rebelling against it and the veil of the temple being torn. Right. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are now ended in his. Yeah. Let me uh, just read us out to uh, our our next and final uh, break. You write that when Pilate showed the bloodied Christ crowned with thorns to the people, he said, Ecce homo, behold the man. In so doing, he was unknowingly telling the crowd to regard what we do to one another as a result of original sin. As the serpent Moses lifted up in the desert, in the, in the desert was a sign of the disease from which the Israelites suffered, so Christ suffered, so Christ lifted up on the cross shows us what lust, domination, and manipulation do to us. Jesus is humiliated physically by our spiritual disease, by our ignorance, weakness, malice, and lust. In Christ's triumph over death, he shows us what we are really bound for, that same beatific vision that he experiences perpetually. By his perfect obedience on the cross, he merited his own resurrection for himself, but also for us. We're going to take a break and then we'll be right back. Welcome back to a uh, final segment of Amplify with our guest, Father Brian Milady. He's written a book titled Captivated by the Master a theological consideration of Jesus Christ. The uh, final chapters uh, deal with uh, the resurrection, and also Jesus is titled, He is Risen, and also the Savior is Exalted. Uh, But Father, before we get there, let's just, um, we've not been able to cover everything in the book, but say something about uh, uh, Mary's role in in all of this. that, that you mentioned that the submission of women was one of the evils that resulted from the original sin. Right. Well, first of all, as you remember at the punishment, God turns to the woman and says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That was not the way it was in the original creation. There was an order between man and woman, but it was a wise governor to free citizens. It was perverted into being like master to slave as a result of the original sin. Now, of course, the Mosaic law 
changed a, a bit of that because the Mosaic law begins the redemption. And though the Gentiles, for example, they permitted the testimony of women, that's one of the reasons why in Matthew you have the nativity from Joseph's point of view, but in Luke, who was writing with the Gentiles, you have it from the Mary's point of view. Uh, women began to be reinstated, you could say. But again, obviously they couldn't be circumcised, so it was, it was strange how they were uh, thought of. But in the uh, New Testament, of course, baptism is the means by which we all become members. Women are equally members as men are in the Christian church. They're not all called to the same vocations. But as far as being members of the Christian church called to holiness, you know, they're all the same. And Mary begins that because just as Eve, in a certain sense, was the mother of the living and began the first sin, although it wouldn't have been a sin unless it was completed in the fullest sense of the word of nature by Adam, because he's the final fulfillment of the, the nature, you know, first her, then him. In the New Testament, Christ's redemption begins with Mary's perfect obedience. And that's demonstrated in the Annunciation. And then, as you know, she's always, because the flesh that comes from her body which expresses divinity, which is the tool of divinity, which is uh, the means, the touch of which performs miracles, even his clothing performs miracles, who uh, suffers on the cross and who rises from the dead and now reigns at the right hand of the Father in heaven. All of those things are things in which Mary is intimately a part because the flesh came from her body. And I remember I had an evangelical who's a friend of mine. We used to argue about things in a good way. And he said, now, I don't understand what this Mary thing is with you people. Can you explain that to me? And so I said, look, do you believe in Scripture, right? Oh, yeah. It's a literal interpretation. Oh, yeah. So I said, well, all it says in Scripture is all generations will call me blessed because he whose money has done great things for me, and that's all we're doing. Mm -hmm. And he thought for a minute and said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, and it's interesting how Scripture begins and ends with her, in a sense, too, and Jesus. So in Genesis 3.15, you have the woman, the child, and the snake. In Revelation, chapter, I believe it's 11, you have the woman, the child, and the dragon. And she's a part of the whole mystery, always. And also, because she is the first member of our church, she is a believer, Faith is the primary thing attributed to her in her relationship to her son. There is no human person, Christ is a divine person, there's no human person who ever has lived or ever will live on earth who is more human and greater than Mary because of her believing in her loving God, which is what the true dignity of the human race consists in. Um, let's talk, Let's. There's, there's so many other questions I'd like to talk about. Uh, Mary, but uh, let's let's speak about uh, the resurrection. Um, uh, we see the resolution of Jesus's death on the cross. Um, we see that once sin is defeated, we are given hope in our final destiny, the beatific vision. But before there is any experience of Jesus having risen from the dead, there is what you said is traditionally called 
the harrowing the of, of, of hell, hell <laughs> that he descended yeah. into hell. A lot of people don't understand that. Well, a lot of people don't even think about it, which is interesting. Uh, as you know, we have this beautiful reading about it that I think I quoted for Holy Saturday in the breviary uh, of an ancient unknown author. And what the idea is, is that as Christ spent three years on earth evangelizing the living on earth, so he spent three days in the limbo of the fathers and mothers, the limbo of the just, the limbo of those who had gone before him in faith, who are describing Paul's letter to the Hebrews, evangelizing them. And there's an absolutely beautiful picture for Angelico painted of Christ knocking down the doors of hell, because Satan's way off in the park. If you define hell in general as not having the vision of God, in a certain sense this is true, it's also what's called Sheol or Hades. So it's a, a nebulous concept uh, because of the, the revelation before Christ. This wasn't totally clear one way or the other. But Satan's cowering off in a corner, and Christ is standing there with the banner of the resurrection, and all these people are running over to him with their arms outstretched because they finally see him in whom they believed explicitly. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that revelation is extremely important because even in the Benedictus we said, those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death, well, the darkness part would be all of us on earth, but the shadow of death would be those people who are in Hades. You uh, you write in your book, uh, Captivated by the Master, um, and I just as Pilate's Ecce Homo, which I, I read earlier, shows the painful and horrible limitations of fallen human nature after the original sin, when the risen Jesus appears in the upper room and wishes the apostles, quote-unquote, peace, he demonstrates what man is really meant to be. Man is a unity of body and soul, in absolute unity. Our immortal soul is not an accessory, our God-seeking intellect not an optional add-on to our humanity. This means that man is a being made for God, not a being made for death. Right. Uh, when Jesus says, here it is I, it's like saying ecce homo again. This is what we're created for. And the reason I put that in the book is because I, you may be aware that there's a whole school of European theology that has especially its source in Germany, uh, influenced by Heidegger, Catholic theology, this is, who says that man is being made for death, und sein zum Tota. And he goes mm -hmm. into the arena like the bull goes into the bull ring and knows he's destined for death. And again, has to make some sense out of this seemingly meaningless condition. Not at all, because we have an intellect and will. There's no way we can possibly be fulfilled except in the beatific vision. And since our body and our souls are absolutely in unity with each other, um, as far as being human beings, human nature, that, that can't occur in its fullness until the body manifests and reflects it. Now, ours doesn't at the moment, because we're saved for the general resurrection that Jesus and Mary's do. And so when we see them, we see just what we were created to be, the goodness of God, sharing his goodness. Mm -hmm. And we believe that when we receive him in communion, 
our bodies mingle with his as a preparation right. for our own resurrection. Yeah, well, we say this in the Osakakonzibian, don't we? The pledge of future glory is given to us, right? Um, and St. Augustine says somewhere that uh, in all other food, we become food becomes us. Because I digest bread and change it into my flesh. But in this food, I become the food. Mm-hmm. So I both spiritually and physically, even physically, uh, mingle with Christ himself, and I prepare myself not only in the resurrection of my soul through grace, but also I'm preparing for the resurrection of my body, too. Because the body is necessary to this. Uh, lots of modern theologians think there was no objective experience of the resurrection about touching. If they hold for an objective experience of Jesus risen from the dead, it's always Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, which does not involve touching. Mm-hmm. They tend to think that... Uh, but uh, the community made up all these things to make sense out of the meaninglessness of Jesus' death. But this is ridiculous. It's not portrayed that way in Scripture ever. Even cooks cooks for them, for heaven's sakes, you know. And he eats a piece of fish, and he invites them to touch the wounds, Mary Magdalene not to cling to him, gives a Scripture teaching to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I mean, you know, the, the 40 days on earth after after his resurrection of the dead, we used to call it the mystological catechesis. They're just as important as the time beforehand, because now we see what the final things are that he was preparing the disciples to understand. In the the final chapter, The Savior is Exalted, um, you teach us that we will all experience two judgments. What are those two judgments? What happens in each of them? Well, there's the personal judgment when we die. And Jesus himself judges us. All judgments are given to me. This is partially in reward for him having been judged unjustly by human judges. And we are destined either for heaven or hell, of course, purgatory being the antechamber to heaven when a person's resolved their issues. But this Judgment is not totally, uh, it's complete in person, but it isn't finally pronounced in nature because man isn't just a person who is a soul. He's also a union of body and soul. And as a result, when the body rises from the dead, there'll be a second judgment, which is pronounced before all the living and the dead, not just personally to us, privately. And in that judgment, Christ himself will pronounce it, the wicked will have the punishments added to them that everyone in the whole assembled creation will know what they've done. Now, there's not anything that's hidden that won't be manifesting light. And the people who perhaps seemed to other people to be weak or not good will have that judgment pronounced uh, also publicly, and that will add to their goodness because whatever difficulties they had in their reputation will also be resolved as a whole assembled creation and add to their glory. Mm-hmm. And what will be the, stand, the standard of judgment? Oh, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good one, too. Many Catholics, I don't know, they tend to think that the more miserable they are, the more they suffer, the better their works are. Well, that's not true. St. Therese was very clear about this. 
It's not the pain, and St. Augustine also says, it's not the pain that makes the martyr, it's the love with which it's done. So on the eve of this life, no matter how great or small our works are, they'll be judged by love, and that's the standard. How much you've experienced union with God on earth will determine how much you know him in heaven. Now, obviously, the same God is revealed to all. That's the meaning of the famous parable of the 11th hour, where, you know, some people work one hour, other people's work uh, 11 and they get the same reward, which seems to us unjust, because we think of it as social justice. It's not about social justice. It's about the reward of our life in general, in heaven. But depending on how disposed we are to receive it, we'll enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. And that disposition has to do with how much we love God on earth. So the most important thing is to try to make every day an act of which to Christ's action you show your love for God through your neighbor, especially, and uh, because who can say he loves God? He doesn't see if he doesn't love his neighbor whom he can see. And that's either by suffering their weaknesses against us or by doing good deeds for them. And, and those don't have to be great. Again, mm-hmm. if you get up and take care of your child because he's crying in the middle of the night because you love him and you're a Christian, that can be a very great act. On, on the other hand, uh, you know, if, if if you're not showing any works or you despise your neighbor or mistreat your family or cheat at business, for instance, or something like that, doesn't matter how much you do as far as trying mm-hmm. to uh, force your, your way into heaven. You, at least if you go there, it won't be quite as, uh, what would you say, um, full, the experience. The fullness of the experience is determined by the amount of love with which even the smallest works are done. Yeah, if you can amplify on that, Christ gives us the gift of new heavenly life, you're saying. What what do we know about that? Is that still part of the great mystery? Well, it is, except we do have an example, and uh, first of all, of uh, him. So we know the risen body, for example, is a body. It's not a ghost. We know that it can pass through walls because Christ passed through walls. But you know it's still physical because Christ ate a piece of fish. We also know, because this is, the book of Revelation teaches us this, that all of our physical defects will be resolved there. So a person who doesn't have a hand or a foot, they'll receive all that back. Uh, we also know that we'll re- even though it isn't absolutely necessary for the fullness of happiness to have friends in heaven, because Christ should suffice, the fact that there are other people there and the angels, we're all friends, and we're all friends in him, in the communion of saints. And that adds to our experience of joy. Not uh, The classic term is not more intensively, but more extensively. Because we enjoy it in a, in a deeper sense, a more full sense, I guess you could say. So uh, we know that everyone will be happy in God, and also that we'll experience total fullness within. And so as you come towards the end of your book, you conclude that indeed Christ was not just a good man, as many people might understand him, think him to be uh, today, not just a good man. And when you write then, who is Jesus Christ? It 
towards the end of the book, he says we turn one last time to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Perhaps the most single sentence in Scripture to answer this is in 1 Timothy, quote, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man of Christ Jesus. Exactly. Unique mediator. Not just one among many religious figures who can also be like a good moral teacher. Unique mediator. Because in him we see our God made visible, and so are caught in love of the love of the God we cannot see. And as you speak about uh, the uh, Trinity, you indic- you write, um, the Father has no mission but sends the other two in mission. The Son, on the other hand, has both an invisible and visible mission. As the Word begotten by the Father, He is the truth. And um, you write that the ancient fathers called the Holy Spirit the most sweet kiss of the Father and the Son because he proceeds from both after the manner of love. Said so beautifully and and so poetically um, uh, as uh, happens throughout uh, the entire book. Our guest this evening has been Father Brian Malady, 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 um, and captivated by the master of theological consideration of Jesus Christ. I don't say this too often, but uh, if uh, you were teaching a class and I had the opportunity to attend it, I'd be there. So that's about the best thing I can say for a man that's 80 years old now. So That's true. God reward you, Father. Thank you. God bless you in your ministry. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Good night. Bye-bye. So um, there are a lot of things that uh, we... We could we could say more, but let me just read a, a little bit uh, in conclusion uh, from from the from the book. Uh, some of the things are repetitious, um, but uh, they come to a, a beautiful final conclusion. He writes, "While Christ performed miracles, which are extremely important to understanding his mission." The primary way he atoned for us was by the simple goodness of a human will filled with the divine presence of the Trinity. Here on earth, he invites us to discover our share in his divine nature through the means of his human nature, to associate ourselves with him in all that he is and all that he has been, from his birth to his ministry, to his passion, death, and exaltation, and through him to find the means by which we return to God who created us. When we experience the Lord Jesus in his human nature on earth, we are really entering into God. Christ prays for us. He is our priest. In him we return back to the God from whom we came. By the grace that granted him the beatific vision and union with God the Father, and by the grace that made him a perfectly justified human being, Christ's human nature is the channel 
by which we can enter into prayer and intimacy with God again. Through the capital grace, as our one true high priest and mediator, he wants us to give ourselves in the ordinary things of life continuously and always to him. For this grace we pray to him because he is our Lord. The Lord emptied himself. The Lord suffered death. The Lord was exalted. And in all of this, nothing about him was changed except how we come to know him once he took flesh. It wasn't that he became, quote-unquote, more God in his incarnation. And it wasn't that he merited any more than he always had. It was rather that he gave and gives his grace to us. And so his mission is our mission, and he fills our human will with his goodness and also with his grace. He invites us to discover um, in his divine nature the means of his human nature to associate ourselves with him. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone. Come back next Sunday and amplify with us.